Hey everyone, welcome back to Adhering Apologetics. Really pumped you're joining us today. As always, we're back to you with your support on Patreon.com slash Apologetics. Today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Bird. Uh, in case you don't know who he is, he's a New Testament scholar. He's written and edited over 30 books in the fields of the Septuagint, the Historical Jesus, the Gospels, uh, Paul, Theology, and just so much more. Um, really pumped to have Dr. Bird on the show. We're going to be talking about some Pauline theology. Uh, Dr. Michael Bird, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Zach. I'm doing pretty well, man. Awesome. Well, I'm really pumped to have you on uh, joining me from Australia. So good morning to you. So I'm curious, in case people don't know like who you are, could you talk a little bit about yourself and like who you are and what you do? Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, I'm Mike. Uh, I live in Australia. I'm the academic dean at Ridley College in Melbourne, Australia. Ridley College is, a, is an Anglican theological college where we train uh, people for Christian ministry from all walks of life. Uh, originally from the UK, but I've lived in Australia pretty much my whole life besides a few, you know, um, stints overseas here and there. Uh, spent some time in the in the military uh, for, for a number of years. Went to Malian College in Brisbane to do my undergraduate Bible college degree, then did some graduate degrees and a doctorate at the University of Queensland. I've taught at the Highland Theological College, the Brisbane School of Theology, and now at Ridley College in Melbourne. Awesome. Well, I mean, it seems like you've done so much just um, in the little bit of life. You've had so much work in so many fields of the New Testament and just scholarship in that. So I'm curious, like, what got you interested in, like, the New Testament and, like, studying it and, like, becoming uh, a leading scholar in the New Testament scholarship today? Oh, well, a, a number of things. Uh, I, I came from a, a non-Christian background. I wasn't a very religious family, but, you know, when I joined the army, that's when you might say I, uh, I got religion <laughs> and became uh, particularly keen on Jesus and being involved in the church and training people and teaching people, you know, the word of God. And it kind of just, just grew from there. And uh, I went to I went to theological college initially with a view to potentially becoming an army chaplain. Uh, but it became apparent that my giftings were more on the academic side than on the people side. Mm. And, you know, I just kept doing degrees and I kept doing relatively well and uh, was able to get a, a job at a, at a nice, wonderful college in the north of Scotland. I, I then began doing a little bit of writing, a little bit of publishing kind of on the side uh, with my, you know, wide ranging interests, you know, from, you know, historical Jesus, a bit of textual criticism um, and a whole bunch of other things. Obviously, you do Jesus and Paul and and some other things as well when you're into early Christianity and, and the New Testament. And it just kind of grew from there. I just, every time I got interested in something, I'd read uh, read up on it and I'd developing my own thoughts and ideas and I'd fly a kite on them, you know, in, in an article. And then I'd maybe write a book on something and it, that's just how it all happened. <laughs> well, it's an amazing story. I'm curious, like you talk about uh, finding Jesus while you're in the army, at least uh, in America, it almost seems like it's almost like the opposite uh, is what happens in terms of our military forces and just like religion and such. But with you, you come from a non-religious background and you come to Christianity. I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about like that journey to like becoming a Christian. Yeah, I mean, Australia is in some senses, not in every sense, but in some sense, it is a fairly secular country. I mean, I could give you various anecdotes. I mean, it, it, we don't have the same kind of religious heritage as uh, you have in, in the United States. And religion plays a very different role in society. And then the role of religion in Australian society has evolved a lot and changed, ebbed and flowed in the last hundred years or so. But I grew up in, in Brisbane. Uh, it's a major city on the East Coast. My parents were not particularly religious. My mum was a little bit anti-religious. She would really verbally abuse the Jehovah's Witnesses when they came to the door. Mm. Uh, but it was also a very dysfunctional family for all sorts of reasons. And I just thought, you know, religion was for people who needed a crutch. Uh, it was just, you know, for moralizing bigots and that type of thing. Uh, you know, geriatrics who were worried that young people were having too much fun. Uh, everything I knew about Christianity, I pretty much learned from Ned Flanders from The Simpsons. <laughs> you know, the Simpsons has been around for most of my life, can you believe? And uh, pro probably probably more than yours, uh, <laughs> depending on how old you are. But that's how I grew up. And But, you know, when I joined the Army, I got invited to go to church. And out of, you know, sheer boredom, um, I decided to go along. Um, and I was expecting, like I said, the, the moralizing geriatrics that you would find. 
Uh, and that's not what I found. I found some really wonderful, nice people whose lives were changed, whose lives were different to everyone around me. Mm. And I knew what made them different was they had a relationship with Christ. And I heard the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, the forgiveness of sins, the hope of eternal life, uh, participating in God's new world and being able to be um, light and salt in the world around us. And, uh, you know, I, I, I committed my life to Christ and the world's been a different place ever since. Mm, that's amazing. Praise God for your story. I'm curious, like, why do you love like studying the New Testament so much? Because it seems like just like looking at like your bibliography, like you have a book or two coming out every year and you're always researching and all these different things. So it seems like you have this like big passion for like the New Testament in this world. Like what drives you to like just kind of like love and study the New Testament? I think there's a, a number of things. Uh, the, the first thing is my personality. You have to understand I'm one of those people I live inside my head. This is just the matrix. This is the matrix. The real world uh, is inside my head. That's where I kind of. Um, that's where I kind of kind of come and do things. This is just the. Um, this is just the, this is just the matrix for me. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, a number of things. Um, you know, at one level, I've got, and like I said, I've, I live inside my head, and I have so many things going on in there, and it seems such a shame to keep them to myself. Uh, there is there is a danger to that. There is a danger of that. You can't be, can't end up becoming one of those people who doesn't have any unpublished thoughts and everything you think uh, you feel a need to broadcast. Uh, and and that that is not always healthy. Uh, I know, um, but that's what that's what Twitter and social media does now. Everything you literally think about, you can broadcast everything. Where some things probably need to be digested and processed for a bit. It might longer. be good to filter every once in a while, you know. Yeah, yeah, I've uh, yeah, my filters don't always work that well, uh, <laughs> as 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 my as my wife and friends and students can tell you. I probably need more filters. <laughs> but yeah, but I, I live in I live inside my head, and uh, I get I get my energy in life from from thinking and writing, is what gives me energy, drive, and passion. Mm. And, and and the second thing is, you know, for me, this this really is a uh, a life's passion. You know, I, mm. I I have a great love for for Christ, His Church, uh, the mission of the church in the world. So th this this is for me. It's not like I'm writing, you know, um, papers about engineering or the reproductive habits of plankton. Uh, this is a this is a topic for me that I'm that I'm very passionate about. I'm energized by, I'm excited by, it, it gets my, uh, it touches my spirituality, my, my daily life, my work life, and my uh, cre creative cerebral energies are very much bound up with this topic. Mm. So let's dive into a little bit about talking about Paul, who we'll be talking about for the next like 30, 40 minutes or so. And then we'll have some questions, we'll answer some of those as we head towards the end. But for now, um, you've obviously written some work on specifically Paul, such as like introducing Paul. There's uh, Salem in the live chat said he read your book and really loved it. Um, so, and there's also just like, if you're going to have any sort of like New Testament theology, it seems like you need to understand like Paul, you wrote a good chunk of the New Testament. So very broadly, if someone was going to ask you like, Hey Mike, who is this Paul guy that we all we hear about as we look at the New Testament? Like, how do you respond? Like, who is Paul? Yeah, that's that's a that's a good question because pe people have all sorts of images of Paul, ranging from the kind of like a big tent revivalist, all the way through to this real nasty guy who had <laughs> some big issues with women and gays and 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 all sorts of things. So it, it, you know, you often got to find out what people know of Paul so far. Uh, to, to get where they are. But Paul was, in I would say, a Jew of the diaspora. He was a Greek-speaking Jew from Tarsus who had done some study in, uh, in Judea, was very zealous in his faith, in his, in his ancestral religion, to the point of a willingness to use sacred violence to stop what he thought was a rogue messianic cult. But along the way, he had an intense religious experience on the road to Damascus that convinced him that Jesus was not a false prophet or a failed Messiah. He was, in fact, the son of God and identical with the glory of God. And at that point, everything changed. Paul's life was turned around. It took him a while to kind of get his bearings, to, to reorientate himself to this new this new world, this new cosmos he was in fact part of, and he eventually uh, discerned uh, or, or, or 
understood that he had a mission to be God's apostle, God's emissary to the non-Jews and to share uh, to share the good, the gospel of Jesus Christ with with Gentiles, with with non-Jews. That's that's probably the, the, the basic way to explain who Paul was. Mm. I'm curious. Uh, a lot of people will use Paul's conversion as like an apologetic argument to be like you have like a church persecutor, Paul, who becomes uh, one of the first martyrs of the Christian church. So I'm curious, like when you look at like the story and the conversion of Paul, how do you see it like in terms of like an apologetic argument for like the truth of Christianity? Uh, well, yeah, I mean, a lot of people uh, do that. And I, I understand the utility of that. I, I guess that the the approach that I come from is you, you've got to look at, you know, why does Paul write the stuff that he does in, say, mm -hmm. Galatians 1, Philippians 3, or 1 Corinthians 15? Why does he use this language of going from being a persecutor of the faith to its proclaimer? And that's the story he narrates, you know, very clearly. Uh, the, qu the question is, is what happened to him to, to make that happen? Uh, and then how, and then importantly, what language does he describe it in? Because he does describe himself as a, as, as very much like a, a prophetic figure in some senses, uh, or as a servant of the Lord in other ways. So, yeah, I mean, Paul believed that he really, really saw Jesus. Uh, he believed that the one whom had been crucified under Pontius Pilate, uh, whom he had a low view of, or what he calls an earthly perspective of, or a human perspective of, that his entire verdict of who Jesus was was turned upside down through this profound experience, this this vision, this this apparition, or whatever he had of of the risen Jesus. This changed his worldview, and this this set him on a, a completely different course, that whereby the things he once valued. Um, you know, which is, you know, zeal in the law, his, his uh, inherited Jewish privileges. He says, not, it doesn't say they're bad, but compared to the surpassing value of knowing Christ, he says they are skubala, they are refuse, you know, they are garbage in comparison. So uh, as a historian, I'm concerned about, well, what actually happened and why does he describe it the way that he does? As a Christian, yeah, it, it certainly points out that these people really believed that Jesus was alive to the point that they dedicated their life and they were even willing to die for what they believed. Mm, really interesting. I'm curious very briefly, a little bit off topic, but it's like uh, with Jesus mythicism a little, because a lot of it hangs on the idea that Paul didn't believe in like sort of like bodily resurrection of Jesus. I'm curious if you could comment very briefly on like kind of like the mythicist arguments you'll get that Paul had maybe since believed saw sort of like celestial God almost in Jesus or something along those lines. Then uh, kind of based on Paul, try to build a case for Jesus mythicism. Yeah, I, I'm not. I'm not really a big fan of the whole Jesus mythicist uh, movement. It's uh, a sort of a, a very small segment of the internet uh, run by some uh, atheists who I assume are somewhere in their mama's basement with a whole bunch of Richard Dawkins books. Uh, I, I'm on the board of the uh, of the journal for the study of the historical Jesus. This, this is a scholarly journal. I'm on the board for, and. Yeah, we've got a diverse group. We've got Christians of all kinds, evangelical, um, liberal. We've got atheists, agnostics. We've got Jewish scholars. Uh, we've got a very diverse, and we disagree on everything. We just, you know, what did Jesus mean by the kingdom of God? Uh, you know, what was the, you know, the date that, that you know, Jesus roughly lived, you know, all, all that type of thing. We disagree. Uh, there is only really uh, two things we agree on out, out of the board members. Jesus existed. And those that he denied his existence are a very recent phenomenon, which are, shall we say, not contributing well to the corporate knowledge of our mm. discipline. Mm. And it's something that that comes out more or less as part of what I would say um, atheistic propaganda. I mean, this is why, like, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were published, when they were first published, the Soviet newspaper had announced that they instantly disproved the existence of Jesus. Hmm. Now, that goes to show the person who, who wrote that had never read the Dead Sea Scrolls or wasn't reading them. But th th this, 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 is, this, this is the ultimate coup. This is what they want. It's, you know, we can disprove that this figure existed, uh, then, then we can really put the nail in this whole religious coffin and and to my atheist friends out there or to people of no faith or agnostics what i say is this look 
even if Jesus existed, and by the way, I think he did, you can still be an atheist, mm -hmm. but you just can't say ridiculous or silly things. Okay. So be a far more thoughtful atheist rather than a rabid kind of atheist, because I, I think the, the evidence that Jesus existed um, is, is, is far, far more probable, convincing and persuasive. And, and I would say overwhelming to, to be honest. I mean, obviously, you know, we don't have a time machine. We don't have a video recording of Jesus or a voice recording or anything, but the very phenomenon of the new Testament, the rise of early Christianity, what we know about new religious movements all makes sense. If you do have a founding figure like Jesus of Nazareth. Mm. So let's just transition to Paul a little bit and talk about uh, just some different views of Paul that have kind of come up that I'm recently just in different circles. There may be like debate or things like that. Um, I just know you put some work into Paul, so it'd be interesting to hear your takes. But let's just talk about the atonement because obviously there's different views on the atonement, whether it's Christus Victor or penal substitution or anything else in between. There's all kind of different views on the atonement. But like you as a New Testament scholar who's written a lot of works um, – regarding Paul and such like what do you think of like Paul viewing view of the atonement like what do you see in those works okay uh, last night I was reading through 1 Corinthians chapters 1 to 2 where Paul contrasts the foolishness of the cross with the wisdom of this world uh, Paul clearly believes the cross the death of Jesus the Messiah is a really really big deal it is a turning point of the ages okay uh, but the question is, why is it a big deal? Okay, why is the cross so important? Now, for a particular type of religious subculture, which we might broadly call evangelicalism, the cross is significant because there is a transaction where Christ gets our sins, our sins are given to him, and then we accrue certain benefits from his death, ranging from forgiveness of sins to eternal life, redemption, reconciliation, in that sense. So the, the atonement becomes meaningful in the sense of our individual salvation and a transaction of sin for salvation. Now, that is undoubtedly true. I mean, there, there is a fair bit in the Pauline corpus that speaks to that very thing about you know being justified, being reconciled. But if that is the limit or the boundaries or all you have to say about the cross in Paul, then you have, I think, a very impoverished view of what Paul is talking about. For Paul, the death of Christ is not merely this individual transaction. It is also bound up with the end, with the defeat of the evil age. It's not that Christ dies for us, but, and this is important, we die with Christ. We die to sin. We die to the old age so it would no longer have lordship over us so that we would now live for righteousness rather than for sin. That at this death of Christ, which is symbolized or enacted in baptism, would now become something that we live out in our daily life. The purpose of Christ's death also in Galatians 3 is so that God would bring the Gentiles into the family of of Abraham and so they would receive the Holy Spirit. So what I would tend to say about the cross in Paul is yeah, some of that those good old evangelical themes, you know, in my place condemned he stood is all true and fine. But you've you've got to look at the entire witness and it goes far beyond that. It mm. comes down to uh you know dying, not just dying with him in your place, but dying with Christ, uh living you know, bearing fruit to God, being freed from the present evil age. There's a whole wider constellation of themes. And then you also have to look at what the early church did with Paul. And everyone was content to say that Christ died for us. Christ died for our sins. But the early church never wanted a, a uh, never sought a, a, a specialized doctrinal summary or clarity in the same way it expected with the doctrine of God or the doctrine of Christ. The early church was very content to say Christ died for us, Christ died for our sins, without requiring subscription for specific explanation as to how. And that's because there's a wide range of images for what the cross does for uh, the church, the world, believers in the New Testament. Mm. Thank you. So a lot of times we live in a culture where we want to like assign labels to people. Um, so I'm going to do that here for a second. Uh, so a lot of people, would you say like you kind of would like agree with penal substitution, but then it goes a little bit further than that in terms of like the transformation? Like if we're putting labels on on you, Mike, like what kind of like 
camp, you know, so to speak, would you like ascribe to when you look at like the different views of the atonement and such? Yeah. Penal substitution, I'm very, very happy to affirm it as long as we're affirming what the New Testament does with it rather than some of the caricatures. Hmm. Now, now this is, and this is what some people respond to. Okay. This is what I would argue. Yeah. If your view is something like this, you know, God is so angry with your sin. He's going to get revenge on Jesus, 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 because he hates you so much. You've got to die, die, die. <laughs> you know, if, 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 if it's kind of like that, uh, no, that's not what I think penal substitution is. Uh, penal, penal substitution, I think, is implied by Christ's identification with us and dying both as our representative and in our place, and he, he, you know, God condemns condemns sin in the flesh of the Son of God. Okay, now I think between Romans eight three, um, some passages in Galatians, and you know maybe a few things in Romans, I, I, I think you can lay out a pretty good case for penal substitution. Uh, but what I want to stress that is not the only image or way of describing the atonement. Um, some people want a, an atonement uh, theology or a, a model of the atonement to be kind of like something from Lord of the Rings, you know, the one ring to rule them all. Okay. Mm. Pen, I do not believe penal substitution is the one ring to rule them all. And, and I'll tell you why read the book of Acts. The book of Acts is a digest of apostolic preaching as, as Luke records it. And the death of Christ um, receives uh, not nothing, but a fairly minimal town. It's kind of, it's mentioned a little bit. Um, uh, the death of Christ is mentioned, but not so much the atonement. Only when you get to Paul's speech to the Ephesian elders uh, in Miletus, in, in, in uh, Acts 20, does he mention he purchased the church with his own blood? Beyond that, the emphasis is on the exaltation and the reversal of status. Jesus has gone from being rejected to being thrown at the right hand of God. And I think we have to emphasize what the New Testament authors emphasize and why they do acknowledge, I think, Jesus' substitutionary death. And I think you can argue for its penal nature as well. I would not say that is the center of gravity or the only thing that they emphasize in, in the cross and, and to insist that, you know, the, the cross means penal substitution with a few other little decorations around the side, I think really, really does eclipse what the New Testament itself emphasizes about Jesus's death. Uh, Robert White says, can't wait to hear Mike Bird at the next monster truck rally. Uh, <laughs> you and me, you and me both, or maybe at like one of these like Australian football games that I really want to see. That'd be pretty fun. It depends. Well, we, we have a lot of different types of football. We have AFL, rugby, rugby league, soccer. So, yeah, a lot of different football. <laughs> so another common view that um, – or not common view, but something that is coming up is the apocalyptic Paul, which I believe is the same thing. It's kind of like this idea of this new perspective uh, on Paul. Uh, I know you've written on this topic, so I'm curious because mm -hmm. I think it's something I've just started to notice that has come up, and maybe a few people, if they dive a little bit into New Testament theology, may run, in, run into someone that kind of holds to this view. So I'm curious if you could just kind of like, one, like summarize, like what is this like apostolic apocalyptic perspective on Paul and just kind of like, what do you think of it? Cause it's an interesting idea that's kind of come up. Yeah. I probably need to back up for a second and, and give you a brief survey of the main schools and Pauline thought at the moment. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, you've got your, what, what you might call your traditional Pauline view where the problem with Judaism is that it was too legalistic uh, or at, le at least the way as expressed in, in Paul's time. And Paul's gospel is one of grace rather than works. He sees Christ open against the law. So Christ is coming to save us from the sins we could not be forgiven from under the law. That's a fairly sort of standard Protestant view. Uh, then you've got what's called the new perspective on Paul. It's not really new anymore. But the new perspective on Paul argued, no, the problem with Judaism was not legalism. It was too ethnocentric. It was restricting salvation to the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. And Paul kind of broke down the boundaries between Jew and Gentile. So the works of the law that Paul opposes are not deeds done for salvation. They are the boundary markers separating Jews and Gentiles. And Paul gets rid of them and replaces them with faith in Christ. Now, beyond that, there's also the Paul within Judaism school that says, yeah, look, we need to think Paul not anachronistically as a Christian, let alone a uh, Protestant Christian, we need to think of Paul as a first century diaspora Jew who in, in a large sense is operating in Jewish categories, doing a very Jewish thing. And you know, there were other people who tried to bring non-Jews 
into the faith, the constituency, the religion of the Jewish people. And Paul's just kind of variation of that. And what Paul is really trying to do is saying, look, the Jews are fine as they are. They've got their own covenant. But uh, the, Israel's Messiah is the way Gentiles can become guests or sort of, you know, honorary members within um, ethnic Israel. And that's good for Jew-Gentile relationships. So that's the poor within Judaism school. And then finally, we could have what you would call the apocalyptic Paul. Okay. Now, th this is a little bit diverse and it takes some explaining. But in a nutshell, it argues the main way to understand Paul's theology is in light of a worldview that we call apocalyptic or apocalyptic eschatology, whereby God's action in Christ is invasive, it's dis disruptive, it intrudes, and it comes with new creation. It means the, the death and the end of the old cosmos and the old way of things. And it implies a very strong discontinuity between the new age, the new covenant and faith, and the old age. Uh, now, this is associated with scholars like the late J.R. Martin, maybe a little bit of Ernst Kaiserman. You can see this in contemporary scholars like Doug Campbell, uh, even another one, John Barclay, who, who's quite popular. I think, I think he sort of edges in towards an apocalyptic category. Now, where this view is right is that Paul's theology undoubtedly has an apocalyptic texture. I mean, if you read the opening verses of Galatians, where it talks about how Christ, how God in Christ save us from the present evil age. And you can see how Paul talks about the powers of this age, the rulers of this age. And he does use the language, the symbology, the worldview of apocalyptic. And that's where his theology operates in. So that's where I think it is, it's definitely right. The downside of this is they do tend to overemphasize the discontinuity between the old and the new. So in the case of Galatians, you know, Paul says, Paul comes within a bee's whisker of saying that the law was given by angels, not by God. Uh, and he talks about, you know, being under the curse of the law. And he tells Gentiles, if you go and obey the law, it's like, you know, when you're in slavery to pagan gods a long time ago. But at the same time, Paul does, says things like the law was our pedagogue to keep us or keep Israel, uh, not just in check and to Christ, but to lead us to Christ. He still has a very big um promise and fulfillment thing and the the apocalyptic school i think tends to have a little bit too much of an abrupt chasm between um, israel's sacred history and its fulfillment in christ and they tend to play off the apocalyptic view against what you might call a salvation history view or a or a more covenantal view um, myself and the numerous other scholars ranging from nt wright james dunn J.C. Becker have argued, well, actually, you can have a bit of both. You can have this apocalyptic Paul, but you still need that promise and fulfillment theme. Uh, and the, the, the other final, the two things I would say about the, the apocalyptic Paul is they try to anchor their view and their understanding of apocalyptic literature that there's two types of apocalypses. There's the, co there's the cosmic versions, and then there's these forensic versions. And the forensic mm. version is about, well, you know, you've got all Israel's history, you know, big judgment, then you get forgiveness or condemned. And then there's these other apocalypses about, you know, cosmic change and reformation and renovation. Uh, that taxonomy, I think, breaks down. Uh, most apocalypses include a periodizing of history to a certain climactic point, you know, plus things like otherworldly journeys, angels, and that type of a thing. But this, this division of two types of apocalyptic literature breaks down. And the other thing I would say is the apocalyptic Paul, therefore, isn't all that apocalyptic. It's really influenced, I think, by Karl Barth or certain phases of Barth's theology, mm. whereby he, he really does posit a rupture between what God does in Christ and everything that comes before it. And for Barth and for a few other German scholars of the 20th century, you, you ended up with this position where the the Jew of the first century was, was simply a timeless parable of religious man, you know, mm -hmm. homo religiousness, uh, if you like. So, you know, the, so so the Jews in Judaism are simply a, a, a metaphor or a type of religion. And Jesus in the gospel and in Paul's proclamation comes to do away with religion, uh, including the Old Testament, Israel's law. And you, you can see there there's a little maybe uh, just a tad bit of a sort of a Marcionite sort of a thing 
where you know old testament bad jesus good you you can get a little bit of that if if you, if you don't safeguard it properly so that in a nutshell is the apocalyptic paul it's very big on the apocalyptic texture of paul's thought but it posits a fairly strong and i think uh radical um un untethering or a discontinuity between the old and the new it doesn't like salvation history doesn't like promise and fulfillment uh and i think it's problematic for, for those reasons mm, i'm curious I mean, that, that was a bit of a ramble i know no 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 it's great it's like really it's not like you're going off these like crazy tangents where i have no idea where you are it's, it's very well thought out um uh, i i'm peeking into your head a little bit i really like it um it's a lot of fun i'm curious uh, one last thing about the apocalyptic Paul, a lot of the times they'll talk about like the book of Romans and there's some form of like a Socratic argument going on in like Romans one through three. So I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts on like the, the proposition of the Socratic argument that's going on here in, in the first few chapters of the book of Romans? Oh yeah. I mean, there's, there's, it's undoubtedly diatribal uh, and Paul does kind of talk to an imaginary interlocutor uh, in chapter two. I mean, the debate is who is the interlocutor? Mm -hmm. If you read chapter two, verses one to 11, it could be a Seneca, uh, it could be a rabbi. Uh, and then when you get to 217, he says, if you call yourself a Jew, uh, does that mean he's talking to a real Jew or to a Gentile who thinks he's Jewish? Because, you know, he's you know, went out and bought the latest menorah on kind of, you know, Amazon.com or something or, or whatever. So there's you know, debates about that. But I think in terms of the genre of Romans two to three, there's no doubt that it's that it's a rhetorical diatribe. Awesome. Well, let's go to one last question, just kind of about um, Nick Quince here, who says it's you're one of his favorite scholars. So, you know, oh, well, thank, so, you. thank you. Thank so you. I mean, with an Australian accent like that, I don't know how you can't be one of someone's favorite scholars. But um, let's talk about just like some practical implications for Paul, because we've been talking about like theology in terms of like the atonement, the apocalyptic Paul, things like that. Like when you read Paul and you just kind of like see like how does this apply to your own life and kind of just like drawing things like what can we draw from our lot? To, that can apply to our lives, just reading and learning um, from Paul. I think that there's a there's a number of things you can do, and, and other people who have written on this. I think Scott McKnight's book Fellowship of Difference uh, is 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 a very good read. Uh, that that's got some great suggestions. I, I think there there's a number of things we could take away. Uh, the first one, Paul, in many ways, is doing a kind of multi ethnic or multicultural ministry. Uh, Paul says, my job is to get polytheistic, idolatrous, you know, maybe normally bisexual pagans and bring them to the point of the obedience of faith and turn them into a holy offering to God. That's what Paul says at the end of Romans 15. That's what his ministry is, okay, mm -hmm. to take to take these, these you know, um, heathen, and consecrate them to God, which happens through the spirit and through their faith in the Messiah and Israel's God. So, you know, I mean, the two things going on there, uh, Paul is very much involved in cross-cultural ministry, and he doesn't want one church for Gentiles, one church for Jews. Um, he, he wants them to be united um, in the Messiah, in the spirit. So he is, he is very big of that, you know, that the dividing walls between the races, the ethnicities have been broken down and they've been brought together, which is very good. I think in our age, we, we don't want to have ethnic fragmentation. We don't want Christianity to be turned into a kind of um, civil religion for white people or anything like that. Uh, we, we, you know, we want to we want to see people, every tribe, tongue, language, worshipping uh, the God of creation, the God of salvation. So I think that's where Paul is very important, but also in the sense of seeing your own ministry and service in priestly qualities. That's what he does in, in Romans 15. He says you've got a priestly ministry of taking the people under your care and offering them to God as a as a as a as a holy offering. Uh, beyond, beyond that, I, I think Paul does have a lot to say about how we can live with theological diversity in the church. You know, if you look at like Romans again, 14 to 15, he's got a, a lot to say uh, to those topics. Mm. Yeah, there's a lot in Paul. Uh, we'll go to a little bit of Q&A here as we start to 
wrap things up. There's a few different questions, lots of fun stuff. Uh, Robert White has a question. Thank you, Robert, for your question. Also, thank you for becoming a member today. Really appreciate that. Uh, he says, by the way, to clarify my earlier tweet, I heard Mike Bird say multiple times that reading Jesus and the victory of God by N.T. Wright was when he uh, left the matrix, so to speak. Um, so he's trying to see what he meant by that exactly. Um, so what do you yep. mean by leaving the matrix by reading a little bit of N.T. Wright here? Yeah, well, when I, when I became a Christian, I... Uh, became reformed sort of theologically reformed which which i think i would say i, I still am uh big view on the sovereignty of god like my calvinism you know like my tulips with five points and that type <laughs> of thing and that type of christianity uh can be fine and coherent in galatians and about half of romans but you, you do end up with a problem what the gospels are for and the gospels become basically uh the warm-up act to the apostle paul we like jesus because he's paul's on john the baptist so you know so the gospels are good they've got a whole bunch of sunday school stories basically the, the gospels are there to tell you how to be um how, how to get saved um and how to be a good christian they give you the story of easter and then you get into paul which is all the good theology okay so that's kind of how i viewed the gospels and uh when i read N.T. Wright's book, Jesus and the Victory of God. And I, th I think this is about well, maybe about like page 14 in, in, the, in, the, in the preface. He says, the way most Christians read the Gospels is as long as Jesus had a sinless birth and as long as he had a sin-bearing death, much of his life doesn't really matter. I mean, we know why he died. We just don't know why he lived, you know. And all the stories, all the parables in the Gospels are really just, you know, cute little stories to use in Sunday school lessons, a bit of, you know, adult education, that type of a thing. Now, when I read that, that struck me because, to be honest, that was exactly how I read the Gospels, you know, um, along those lines. And as I read Wright's book, Jesus and the Victory of God, and this is it's probably my most favorite academic book of all time, um, you know, when I read that, it became clear that that was not true, that Jesus was a a prophet of Israel's restoration. And that's, it's, it's be thanks to Wright's book, I, I learned that God's salvation to the world comes to and through Israel. In, in other words, you can't jump from Genesis 3 to Romans 3, okay? You've got to remember that in, in God's plan, a transformed Israel would transform the world. And Jesus is the prophets of Israel's restoration, believing that the promises that God has made to Israel, and there, there's many, they are coming true in and through him. And he is dealing with the world's sin only because he's first dealing with Israel's problem, its own alienation with God, its own breaking of the covenant, its own curses of the law, which he takes upon himself in the cross. And I, I, that gave me a way that suddenly whole new connections appeared between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I was able to better understand Jesus and Paul and the early church in the first century. So it's kind of like, you know, you, you're looking at, at something and you think there's just one little sort of disjointed line and then the lights come on and all of these connections suddenly begin to make sense. So that, that's what reading Jesus and the Victory of God did for me, which is, like I said, it, it remains today. Uh, the book that's had the most um, powerful impact upon me. Mm. Uh, shout out for N.T. Wright's amazing work uh, that he's done. Another question here is, what is different about Mike's book that isn't in N.T. Wright's book? Speaking of N.T. Wright, again, Paul and the Faithfulness of God, um, Paul Biography, and Burden Wright's uh, New Testament in its World. Oh, well, I mean, that's almost a question as to where do Tom and I, Tom, uh, and I differ um yeah i mean we we do we probably do different a few things um tom is very much into the uh you know the faithfulness of christ you know there's a few passages in romans and galatians does it mean faith in christ or the faithfulness of christ um he goes for the faithfulness of christ uh there i'm a little maybe in philippians 3 but i'm not really quite um into that maybe a few differences on this or that on chronology that type of thing. I mean, I think for the most part, we're pretty much of the same mind. Uh, maybe we might differ a little bit uh, as to how Paul relates to Judaism. For example, if you asked Tom Wright, would Paul have circumcised his son if he had one? I think Paul would probably say, uh, no, Tom, sorry, Paul and Tom, Tom would probably say no. He doesn't think Paul would. Whereas I think Paul probably would circumcise um his own son i mean 
if you know anything about New Testament scholarship, I probably think of myself as being very close to, to Tom's kind of camp on Pauline theology, but probably taking a half step towards um, a half step towards the Paul within Judaism school, certainly closer to someone like Marcus Bockmuehl. Uh, or, the, or, or what what he's doing and what the, how how Paul relates to the law and the Jewish people. So yeah, that, that's that, there's a few interesting areas where where Tom and I might disagree on, but yeah, for the most part, I I think I'm on I'm on board with what Paul is doing, what Tom is doing with Paul. I keep getting that so, uh, I'm, I'm on board what he's doing. Particularly, I think Wright's big idea is that Paul believed that the most lasting symbol of the gospel that it was working and it was taking root in the world uh, despite um, um, the uh, the ventures of his own compatriots despite interference and harassment by roman authorities is that jews and gentiles were being brought together in the messiah um, that and it, that that paul saw that as his lasting legacy and i i think i think tom is very right to see that that that's the case Mm. Uh, can you really go against the infallible word of N.T. Wright, though? Um, just saying. Uh, uh, well, I'm glad to say Tom, even Tom would not call his own word infallible. <laughs> it is a joke, just in case anyone wants to, before anyone calls me a heretic. Uh, Nick Quint says, what trends in Pauline theology need to go the way of the dodo, and which Pauline trends need a resurgence? Oh, boy, that's a good one. Which, which Pauline views need to go the way of the dodo? Oh man, that's hard. Um, look, I, I really, I don't. We, we need to compare Paul with Greco-Roman traditions, whether that's you know language, philosophy, rhetoric, culture, whatever. But I, I really do get a little bit frustrated with people who want to um, understand Paul almost exclusively, like in, in in light of Greco-Roman literature. And they tend to downplay Jewish literature. I mean, if you, I mean, if you, if you look at the number of citations and allusions of echoes to the Old Testament, or at least in, in Greek, what we call the Septuagint, it's clearly that the 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 Old Testament is is the primary thought world in which Paul is operating. So I'm all for reading Herod, not Herod, um, Homer, Herodotus, Hesiod, and all that. But I think at the end of the day, comparing Paul with the Old Testament or maybe Philo and Josephus and the Dead Sea Scrolls is far more profitable uh, than anything else. Again, that doesn't mean it's either or, but if you want to know which is the primary world shaping him, uh, it's got to be the Jewish world. So that, that's the one thing. I, I, I get a little bit frustrated with the endless parallelomania between Paul and, and Greco-Roman um, tradition. Um, ideas that need a bit of a resurgence. I mean, that is... That is a harder one. Um, I, I tend to think that the more you look at things like reception history, the way Paul's been understood across the ages, across the centuries, the more you realize a lot of stuff is not all that new. And this was really struck at me where I read some commentaries on Paul by the British philosopher John Locke. Uh, we normally think of John Locke as the as the father of uh, things like, you know, political and religious toleration, sort of, you know, a, a more liberal society. But towards the end of his life, he wrote some very interesting um, notes, commentaries and paraphrases of, of Paul's letters. And he, he's, he's writing it, I think, partly with a view to combating the more um, conservative or zealous Puritanism in his own day. Uh, but, but he also makes a lot of insights which you know, people today would think, oh, wow, this is a brand new thing that we've just discovered. You know, Paul is interested in the unity of Jews and Gentiles, where Locke, I think, was clearly pursuing uh, a lot of those themes a bit earlier. So I think reception history, I wouldn't say it needs a resurgence, but that's something we need to be constantly conscious of because we always think we're, we're reinventing the wheel and, and we're bringing out new things, whereas they were really just old things that we'd forgotten about for a long time. Mm. 
Uh, another question here. Um, what do you think of the new view of Paul? Can you explain it simply how it's different than the traditional view and what its implications are? Oh, we did cover this um, in much greater detail, but maybe if you had like an elevator pitch to just talk about the new view of Paul, maybe you could just hit on that for just like 30 seconds or a minute. Yeah, I think the, the new view of Paul is, uh, if I, th I think you mean the new perspective on Paul. Mm -hmm. And that was the view that Paul's problem with Judaism was not that it was legalistic because it, no, it, it wasn't. The problem was that it was ethnocentric. Now, here's the, the there's a few issues there. Um, I, I wouldn't necessarily say Judaism was legalistic. I mean, they knew the covenant. They knew about God's grace, God's mercy, God's love for them. Uh, but th this is what I'll say uh, about it. Um, if, if you read like the Dead Sea Scrolls, there'll be passages that sound very much like, you know, we're saved by grace or people are saved by grace. You can read other parts, though, where it sounds a little bit more works orientated. Um, I would say Judaism can become legalistic under three circumstances. One, when you've got a strong emphasis on eschatology, for example, who is going to enter the age to come? Will it be everyone? So if you read something from the, Mash the Mishnah uh, Tractate Sanhedrin 10.1, it says all of Israel has a place in the world to come, except for the following people, Epicureans, Sadducees, and the following. So the idea, look, yeah, so we're saved by grace, but there, there's a way of telling who's going to be in and who's going to be out, okay? So you can become performative there. Secondly, when you've got sectarian debates over how to obey the law, like everyone says obey the law, but how you obey the law, how you keep the Sabbath, um, you know, which which laws do you emphasize? That that can become more performative. And also when you're dealing, thirdly, with um, rights of entry for insiders. So what must Gentiles do to become members of Israel? Do they have to get circumcised, get baptized, just start rocking up, buy a menorah, you know, rent a copy of Fiddle on the Roof? You know, what do they have to do uh, to be saved? And under those three circumstances, when you've got eschatology, sectarian polemics, and rights for entry, you can see a big emphasis on the performance or the doing, even though you could say that, generally speaking, uh, Judaism was certainly conscious of its own view of grace and its own instruments of grace. Hmm. Uh, question here from Nick again. It says, if, tough question here. It says, if Mike is stranded on a desert island and there's only coffee to drink, does he die of thirst or does he dive into the hipster zeitgeist and sip some bean juice? Yeah, well, uh, young, young Nicholas here knows that I have a pathological hatred of coffee, which is why he's asking me that question. Now, I would not drink the coffee because coffee would actually dehydrate you. And you would be far better off not drinking it because coffee is really just dried fruit and sulfur. And so, uh, no, I, I would uh, I would find other ways to acquire the water I need for my sustenance and survival. What is with this hatred of coffee? What did, what did coffee ever do to you? I just, just don't like the taste of it. <laughs> it's kind of like, well, you know, why do you not like Vegemite? Um, yeah. <laughs> Understandable. Uh, we'll go to a couple more questions here before we wrap things up. Um, from Robert White, it says, from a historical perspective, is there a wedge between Paul and Jesus's teaching? For instance, can you get a, a, can you get a focus on Gentiles from Jesus as much as Paul, or is that only in faith? Uh, well, no, I think you, you can find, okay, you've got to remember, Jesus is not going around um, saying, okay, look, I'm going to offer salvation to the Jews, but we all know they're going to rejected because you know they're jews and then we're going to have this crazy great party with all the gentiles um no jesus says you know he has come to israel in fact he tells his disciples don't go to the gentiles don't go to the samaritans go to the lost sheep of the house of israel and that's not just a matter of politeness because his mission is the restoration of israel and that that's the way so looking you know the promise that many will come from the east and the west uh, this is the return of the diaspora, a new temple, a new covenant. There'll be a new Davidic king. There'll be uh, agricultural fecundity, all these various blessings. He's saying that this is where all Israel's hopes are coming from, but they're not coming the way you think because the servant of the Lord has got to go through his crucible. He's got to go through his cross. And then out of that, the curses of exile on the end, and then there'll be a new exodus. But I think Jesus also knows that when Israel gets restored, 
The sequel always is the inclusion of Gentiles. So when Israel's exile ends and all the Jews return to Zion, the Gentiles say, let us come with you. Let us bring gifts and offerings. And now there's a whole bunch of diverse ways this is described in Isaiah 2, Zechariah 8, Micah 4 and Tobit 14 and, and all other literature. But that seems to be the basic story. Uh, once Israel is restored, once these promises to come, the, the sequel is always the inclusion of the Gentiles. And in this way, the Abrahamic promises are fulfilled by Israel being a light to the world, a kingdom of priests, that type of thing. So there is a connection between Jesus and Paul, but we've got to resist the idea of turning Jesus into a proto-Paul who really just wants to do the Gentile mission, but first he's got to you know, go speak, speak to his Jewish relatives. Mm. All right, we'll do one more question here and we'll start to wrap things up. A question from Lucas H. which says, any plans on another edition of his Christian origins debate with James Crossley? Uh, well, James Crossley is a fantastic chap. We always have lots of fun when we're discussing stuff. Um, yeah, I, I don't think there's any plans afoot to do that um me me and james should probably do like a, a zoom interview one day and a chat and talk about everything from uh you know brexit to football to bible religion culture we could have a good chat but uh yeah no plans for a second edition of that book sadly do you have a favorite football club uh yes the melbourne storm or the brisbane broncos they're rugby league teams uh Melbourne Storm won the um, grand final this year and the Brisbane Broncos came last. So I've literally got both ends of the um, the spectrum there on the success and the losers. Hey, at least you know there's American football teams like the poor Cleveland Browns that haven't done anything in the past like 60 years. So you, at least you have a winner. That, that, that counts for something. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's about all the time we have, um, Dr. Mike Berg. I thank you so much for your time. There was so much uh, great content there in just about a 50 minutes. Thank you for your time. Is there any kind of like closing thoughts you want to give before we wrap things up here? Uh, no, Zach, just thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be on your show and to hang out with your listeners. Yeah, Mike, it's been a lot of fun. I'm so glad you joined us today. I'd encourage you all, you can follow Mike. There's a link down so you can follow Mike. Uh, if you're in the show and you're here for the first time and here in Apologetics, you can subscribe, you can leave a like, all these things. And if you enjoy the show, you can support the show on patreon.com slash it here in Apologetics. Uh, Mike, last time, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. No worries. Thank you, Zach. All right. Thank you for everyone for tuning in. Have a good one. God bless.